the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's our first show in December. Where did this year go? Hi, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh, and you're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking phone calls and answering Bible questions, whatever's on your heart and mind, uh, something going on in your life. We'll tell you what the Word of God says to do about it. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340 340- 9585. If you live outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. If you are driving in your car, oh, I'm sorry, you can also use our free Calvary Chapel San Antonio mobile app and send questions in that way. But if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, just hit the call now button at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number one more time is 340-9585. I trust that you had a great Thanksgiving, that you had a lot to be thankful for. Uh, I pray that the Lord was the guest of honor at your Thanksgiving table, especially if you had unsaved family or friends. We had a great time. Paula just cooked a feast. Uh, We had a whole bunch of people at our house. Uh, We had a couple of airmen who... Uh, who got to spend Thanksgiving with us. One of them was so comfortable, he took a nap in our guest bedroom. Uh, It was just really, really a good time. And um, being with other believers, being with friends and family members is always great. The only complaint I had about Thanksgiving is that Paul invited so many people to our house that there wasn't turkey leftovers. And I only got one day of sandwiches uh, after Thanksgiving. So next year, I'm thinking bigger turkey, Paula, bigger turkey. Well, let's get to some questions while we wait your phone calls. I um, appreciate you tuning in more than you know. My first question, two of them actually, comes from Mary. Uh, Mary asks this. Uh, She says, 
Um, I'm reading the book of books of Colossians and Proverbs. I have a couple of questions. First Colossians, I'm sorry, first, oh, the first question, I say, there's no first Colossians, it's first Corinthians. Uh, the first question is from Colossians three seventeen. It says, teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And her question is, how do you admonish someone with psalms and hymns and songs? I think the idea there is, uh, you know, psalms and and singing hymns, quoting the psalms, uh, was a, a typical way of conducting services in the first century church. When Paul wrote this, um, what he's saying is get together, be in fellowship. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, I also believe that to be the Apostle Paul, he said, do not forsake the assembling together of the saints. So what you do is you teach the word in a church service. You also do worship. We do that through um, music, uh, just like it was done in the early church. Different type of music, certainly. Um, songs from the Spirit that God would give to people. Um, but most of all, with gratitude in your heart. So what you do is admonish. Now, a better word for that would be edify others. That's how we do it. Have the word of God on your tongue, Mary. Have a song in your heart. And be someone that others can find comfort from. Be, be someone who has the light of Jesus coming from them. You know, Mary, um, when I was a brand new Christian, not having been raised in church, I had no church baggage at all. I didn't know a, a, a hymn from from a, a contemporary Christian song, and um, I, I remember. Uh, now I'm not a music guy, and yet when I go out to walk with Jesus, and I just be so excited about spending time with Him. Um, you know, the only way I can describe it—it it sounds corny—but the only way I can describe it is that that there was always a song in my heart, and because I didn't know Christian songs. I just made them up. God didn't mind. People around me evidently didn't mind too much. But you see, then when I was able to talk with others, it was always about the presence of the Lord. So I could edify or strengthen others around me uh, just with the song that God put in my heart. So for me, it wasn't a real song. It was a made-up song. But I just had this joy, this sense of joy. I had a, a hope and a future, as Jeremiah promises, um, things that I didn't have beforehand. And so the gratitude part was never a question for me. Her second question from second or, or, or from Colossians 4.10 is this. Uh, it says, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends his greeting, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, You've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Her question is, are the instructions referring to how to treat him? Yeah, it's a great story. There's a backstory here. You know, um, Mark was one who, uh, on Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas, he's the one who bailed on him. He's the one who sort of just quit. He got scared. Maybe it got too, too tough for him. Uh, maybe he didn't expect the persecution that would come when you were out telling people about Jesus. And he just disappeared. He just left them and went home. Uh, Paul considered that sort of a, a, a desertion. And um, when they got back, uh, then there would be uh, time to talk with him, try to correct him. But when they were to go on their second missionary journey, Barnabas 
wanted to take Mark with him. And Paul didn't. And of course, we all know that there was a, 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 a huge argument that arose between Paul and Barnabas, so much so that they went separate ways. Uh, Barnabas took Mark. Uh, Paul was partnered with Silas, and they went on the second missionary journey. Um, the, the instructions about him was Mark's failure was well known in the first century church. And there would be a lot of people who are humans, and our human nature is such that we would sort of be judging him. I can't believe that you bailed on Paul. What were you thinking you bailed on the Apostle Paul? Um, and, and Paul would have said, Paul would have said to him, to, to those other people, take it easy on him. Mark's a good guy. He just failed, but encourage him and restore him and strengthen him. So those would be the kind of instructions. In other words, don't judge him. Don't, don't make him feel condemned because he bailed. Instead, accept him as a brother. And we know, I think this is the great part of this story and how it ends, Mary. Uh, what we know is that um, Mark became very useful in his ministry. Of course, he's the author of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, that would be Peter's perspective on the ministry of Jesus. Uh, and he became very useful, not just to Peter, but useful to Paul and to others. Um, he grew from his experience. He failed. Um, uh, he, he, he suffered some consequences from his failure. But he didn't quit. He kept going. And that's a good story, Mary, because so many of us, we quit. And we, we encounter people that are judging us. We just feel like, well, I'm just going to quit. What's the point in doing it? Uh, Mark kept on going. And, of course, he became a giant of a figure in the first century church, a prophet, a New Testament prophet, and uh, one of those who um, he could count on. I love that. Good question. Thank you, Mary. Here's a question from our email inboxes from Nacho. Uh, Yesterday in your sermon about the Antichrist, now let me stop for a minute. My sermon wasn't about the Antichrist. I don't want anybody to. He was a player in the message yesterday. But my sermons are always about Jesus. In your sermon about the Antichrist, you mentioned that he was going to build something in the wing of the newly constructed temple. Is this the image in Revelation chapter 13, verses 14 and 15? And at what time in the tribulation will this happen? Will the temple be built in the tribulation time frame as well? Uh, Nacho, let me take your question, not in the order you asked it. Um... All of this occurs, uh, what I was talking about yesterday from Luke chapter 21, the Olivet Discourse, um, it all occurs in the second half of the Great Tribulation. That means the temple will be constructed in the first half of the Great Tribulation, and it will be constructed quickly and completely. It will be stunning. Uh, Jews will think that they found their Christ, the man of peace, uh, and everything is going to go well, or so it seems in Jerusalem and concerning the temple for the first half or first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. But as Jews offer live sacrifices for their sins, bulls, goats, lambs will be sacrificed. The man that we call the Antichrist, who is satanically empowered, is going to tire of their religious ritual. And because he always wanted to be Satan, always wanted to be worshipped instead of worshipping, 
um, he's going to demand to be worshipped. And he's going to set up an image of himself uh, in one of the wings of the temple, um, in the Holy of Holies. And he's going to demand that Jews bow down and worship him. And of course, they will refuse to do it. And because they refuse to do it, he will launch an all-out assault on Jews. Um, Revelation chapter 12 talks about that assault. Um, but but it's it's prophesied in in uh, throughout the, the books of the prophets. Uh, it's just one of those things um, that is going to occur. But the image will be set up at the halfway point of the Great Tribulation. Um, remember the first half of the Great Tribulation in Jerusalem, there's going to be those pesky two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, and they're going to be destroying their enemies. They're going to be proclaiming the everlasting gospel of Christ. And Jews are not going to believe. Now, some will, but most won't. Overwhelmingly, most won't. And that's what Antichrist is going to do. You know, he's not going to call himself Antichrist. That's just who we know he is. It is a, 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 a an amazing time because they're going to see miracles. I mean, to see Moses and Elijah, everybody's going to know who they are. And to see them and the miracles that they're doing and still refuse to believe. That's how hard man's heart is going to be at the end during the Great Tribulation. It is a time, Nacho, unlike any other time in history, before or since, uh, things will be so bad that it's impossible for us to really grasp hold of it and understand. So I hope that answers your questions. Thank you for it. I appreciate it. Shows you were listening when I was teaching yesterday. That's always a good thing. 340-9585. We love your live calls. Here is a question from Lionel. He says, how much should I rely on the writings of early church fathers in terms of understanding doctrine? Lionel, this is a question that is under great dispute. Um, Here's the thing that we have to understand. From the very beginning, heresies were coming into the church. People were confused. Um, Whatever God's doing, the enemy's trying to undo And so there's always been, from the very beginning, false teachers. And when those false teachers come in, people get confused. They're going to be chasing all these things. In the first century, the the overwhelming heresy was Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was the belief that um, uh, Jesus was certainly God. Everybody knew that. But they didn't believe that God, because he was holy, could have anything to do with, with human flesh. So they would say that Jesus was God, but he wasn't a man. He only appeared as a man. It was a manifestation of God um, because, well, if he wasn't, uh, if he was holy, then he, he couldn't have anything to do with humanity. Now, I find it interesting, Lionel, that the heresies 2,000 years later are just the opposite. There's no honest scholar that refuses to believe that Jesus was a real person, a real human, a living, breathing man who walked this earth and had a huge impact on the world. What they deny now is his deity. The the thing they affirmed at the beginning, they now deny. The thing they denied at the beginning, they now affirm. So it's just Satan, and he's just twisting things around. So all during the early church, these issues and many others were coming to forefront. Now, I say all of that because the early church fathers weren't as dependable as we like to think. Now, we revere them. We 
we are um, in awe of the work that they've done, their their heroism in the faith. Uh, I mean, we're, we're not to belittle them at all. But the truth is, man has always believed wrong stuff. So I don't rely on the early church fathers at all in terms of understanding doctrine. I think everybody that I've ever known who does study on the early church fathers and what they believe comes away more confused than they were at the beginning. I don't doubt that they were believers. I don't doubt that they had great value to offer to the people of the time. The The problem now is that we look at the early church fathers sort of like they're the apostles themselves, and they're not. So, Lionel, I wouldn't rely on them at all. Um, I rely on my Bible. Um, I read um, a lot from from different sides of issues, and, and I want to study, I want to get understanding of what people believed. I want to understand culturally what was going on at the time. I want to look in context to whom was the author writing, uh, what was he intending to say. I want to understand all of those things. And then I get my understanding of doctrine from what the Bible actually says. So it doesn't mean I'm smarter than they were. It just means that my anchor for doctrinal issues is the Word of God. Not somebody else's interpretation of the Word of God. A friend of mine who, who told me not to, too long ago said, yeah, but, but, you know, everything in the Bible is a matter of interpretation. And I said, it's not. We interpret things incorrectly, for sure. But that's because we're fallible. We're not perfect. But if you look at the Word, let me give you just a couple of examples. When Paul writes that we're to flee from sexual immorality, there's no interpretation. All we have to do is take it at face value for what it says. And I think, Lionel, a lot of us forget that and we get confused. Well, you know, this church father said this and and today somebody else said this. It doesn't matter. What does it say? It says flee from sexual immorality. Now, everybody in listening to this voice, thousands and thousands of people who are listening to this program, everybody understands that. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. Everybody understands that. Put your wife's needs ahead of your own. The problem is we don't want to do it. And because we don't want to do it, we're looking around for interpretations. When I talk to our church here, Lionel, I always talk about we're looking for loopholes. We want to figure out how something that is clear and, and easily understood doesn't apply to us. So we sort of find other people who will agree with what we want to say. As you know, Lionel, in the church today, there are in the professing church, I'm not going to say in the in the, the true church of Jesus Christ, but, but there are now uh, millions of professing Christians who've thrown away their Bibles and believe that it is okay to live a homosexual lifestyle. God made you that way, by the way, he didn't, and so it's okay. But all you have to do is look at the Word and read what it says, understand each word, and we know that's not true. So I don't think you should lean on the early church fathers much at all in terms of understanding doctrine. If you like history like I do, um, if you want to celebrate 
the lives of men and women who will be in heaven. We'll get to talk to some of those early church fathers when we get there. Um, that's great. That's great. But just as I tell people here at our church, don't rely on what I say. Check out what I say. See if it lines up with what the Bible has already said and establish your doctrine that way. Doctrine is so important, Lionel. Paul, in the last letter that he wrote to Timothy, his son in the faith, knowing he was going to die, the most personal of all of his epistles, he says to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. You see, if your doctrine's wrong, your life is going to be wrong. If your doctrine's right, then your life is going to be right. That's why Paul put them together. They're, they're inseparable. So, Lionel, read them. Um, their stories are inspiring and interesting. But just because they lived closer to the time of Christ doesn't mean that they know something that we don't know. I hope that makes sense to you. Here is a question from Romy. I hope I'm saying that right, R-O-M-Y. Um, Pastor Ron, what's the difference between justification and sanctification? Uh, Romy, justification is what occurs instantly the minute you're born again. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are justified. Now, one of the ways to remember what justification is all about is the word justified says, just as if I'd never sinned. Now, that's not a catchy, cute phrase. It just helps us remember. Uh, it doesn't allow us to take lightly the gift of justification. It means that it costs God everything in order to forgive us of our sins. So justification is something that happens at the moment of rebirth. When you're born again, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit comes in you and the result is you are as though you'd never sinned. You are clean. He who knew no sin became sin that we might be the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians 5.21 says. So that's justification. Sanctification. Uh, I've always thought of it, Romeo, as sort of like Jesus rolling up his sleeves. You know, we get saved. Our sins are forgiven. Past, present, and future sins. All forgiven. But then I imagine Jesus sort of rolling up his sleeves, saying, okay, now I've got a lot of work to do with this guy. And so that sanctification is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus every day. It is the practical outworking of our faith, becoming more like Jesus day after day after day. One of the reasons that I always say, just be with Jesus, Romy, is because when you're with him, you're going to be more like him. You're going to learn to respond as he responds to things. And that's this process of sanctification. And that process goes on until we are with Jesus. So until I die, or until the rapture of the church happens, whichever is first, by the way, I'm rooting for the rapture, until that time, then my job is to stay close to Jesus, to learn more about who he is, so that I can become more and more like him, and less and less like me every single day. So if I can do that, then one day, it's almost like a graduation ceremony. I'm going to be in the presence of Jesus and sanctification is going to be over. So that's the simplest way, I hope, the most understandable way that I can explain it. Justification happens instantly. 
Sanctification takes a lifetime, and it is a wonderful process. You know, we were just talking. We're coming close to the end of the first half of the show, so I won't go to another question till we come back. But we were just talking, Paul and I, this week uh, about how fast time is going. I mean, we've been here now for 24 and a half years, um, and, and it honestly seems like it just started yesterday. And we have been through so many trials. Now, we've had wonderful, wonderful times as well. And, and, and those trials, however, as I look back on them, Romy, those trials have produced more Christ-like character in me than any of the blessings. I'll give you an example. Uh, I, I didn't know that I wouldn't quit when things got tough, until things got tough. And those are really hard trials. But in the end, like Jesus, who said his face is flint to go to Jerusalem, I determined with Paul's partnership that we were going to be here. We were going to stay here. This is where we're going to serve. This is where we're going to die. And that's not true of everybody. God moves some people around, but he made it really clear to us that this is our duty station forever. And that process of being with Jesus through the trials that prepared us for everything that comes along, well, that process has made me more like Jesus than I was before. Last thing I'll say about this, Romy, is the one problem with sanctification is the more like Jesus you become, the more unlike him you realize you are. And that process of sanctification continues year after year after year. Good question. I appreciate those doctrinal questions. This is the word to stand on for life. In the second half of our program today, we'd love your live phone calls and questions. 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call us toll free at 877-630-KSLR. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, the Monday edition of the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We will be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and The Word to Stand On for Life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Hi, this is Steve Branson. I am pastor at Village Parkway Baptist Church, and I am inviting you to listen to our program, Materiality. It is every Saturday at 1130, and it's here on KSLR AM 630, The Word. When you're looking to buy or sell real estate, do it right with AlamoCityBrokers.com. Eduardo Pena is not only a licensed real estate broker, he's also a certified public accountant and a talented interior designer, staging luxury homes all over Central South Texas. Eduardo Pena's knowledge of deferring taxes with large real estate capital gains will save you valuable tax dollars. Hire Alamo City Brokers to maximize your next real estate transaction. Alamo City Brokers, specializing in San Antonio luxury real estate. AlamoCityBrokers.com If you need to make a change in your child's education, visit Trinity Christian Academy. I'm Chris Ballou, the new director of Trinity Christian Academy. God is looking for a generation that knows the truth, has strong Christian character, and is well prepared to impact their culture. The time for us to impact these young men and women is now. Trinity Christian Academy is now enrolling pre-K through high school. Our campus is safe, beautiful, and located just over the hill behind Trinity Church on 1604 near Green Mountain Road. 
We keep our class sizes small at an affordable tuition rate. Your child will not only grow academically, but spiritually, socially, and physically as well. I invite you to come see for yourself. Our family atmosphere is on a peaceful and safe campus at 1604 near Green Mountain Road. Tours are scheduled every day. Trinity Christian Academy is now enrolling pre-K through high school, but hurry, space is limited. Visit trinitychristian-sa.com or call 210-653-2800. Trinity Christian Academy. Donna from Louisiana. The storm just hit, and we went from donating to the food bank to needing it. Hunger is a story we can end. End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. We are AM 630, The Word. Welcome back to The Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our show. Our phones have been quiet. You're more interesting than I am, so we'd love to have you call. Here is a question from Beth. And Beth, I get this question from unbelievers all the time. Why did God make people he knows are going to hell? A couple of things you need to understand about creation. God didn't make people. He only made two of them. God made Adam and God made Eve. Now, God is responsible for the process that creates people. The sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife and kids are born, and we know that's the case. Um, but, But why would you expect God to kill babies if he knew that they weren't going to accept him as their Lord and Savior. You see, God gives us all a chance, Beth. He gives us all a chance. You know, life is a really wonderful thing, and there are unbelievers who have great lives. Now, inside, deeply, they're miserable. Their lives are empty. God builds us that way, but from the outside looking in, man, they've got everything going on. We've got unbelievers who have contributed immensely, enormously so, to the world that we live in. I mean, we've got uh, doctors. I've had doctors myself who weren't Christian. Um, artists, scientists, um, uh, people that are not believers, but yet they've made a valuable contribution to humankind. So God made people, giving them the choice whether or not they would know him. But remember, he just didn't keep them from being born. So don't blame God. God created Adam. God created Eve with his own hand, his own finger. But everybody else is made. God is pro-life. So God's certainly not going to, uh, when when a woman conceives or, or wants to conceive and have children, God's not going to say, well, you know, I'm not going to let you do that because your son or your daughter is going to go to hell. He's not going to do that. So what he does is he spends their entire lives literally chasing them down, trying to convince them of how high and wide and deep and long his love for them is. So God doesn't make people God saves people who are lost. And by the way, Beth, every baby is born and lost. 
John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, when we are born, we are condemned already. And when we're condemned already, and that means we're going to go to hell apart from Jesus Christ, then Jesus keeps chasing us. It's a good, good, good question. Thank you, Beth. Let's go to Robert, just outside of San Marcos on line one. Robert, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Pastor Ron? Yes, hi, Robert. Hi. Pastor Ron, how would you interpret Ephesians 2, 6? He did in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That's a wonderful, wonderful passage. Let me get to it so I can read it. Take just a moment. Ephesians 2, 6. I'm playing with computer keys because I can't see my Bible. And God raised us up. This is a future promise. It's glorious. And God raised us up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ. Now, obviously, in context, this whole passage is about how we're saved. We're saved by grace through faith, the faith not of ourselves. The faith is a gift from God. And there's a process that God uses. He comes alongside you, starts to convict you of sin, and then he gives you um, um, an awareness of your need for him. And he's dealt with our past. Verse 6 deals with our future. Because we're born again by the Spirit of God, we have a reservation waiting for us in heaven. Can't even begin to imagine, Robert, what life is going to be like in heaven. Um, I said we can't imagine, but I like trying, you know. Um, And he tells us that we're going to be raised. It's past tense. It's already accomplished. But it's yet a future event. We'll be raised to be seated with Christ. And and the, the practical outworking of that means that we should stop living like we're still in the gutter. It means we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds, the new thinking of our minds. It means we should have new opinions about ourselves, about everything else. It means that because we're seated with Christ, we have his vantage point. We should see ourselves just as he does. Not only seated side by side with Jesus, but walking with him every day. It means that we should stop thinking poorly about ourselves. Um, We need to get the mind of Christ about not only our life, but about who we are. Our future, we're seated with Christ in heavenly. That refers to that, that time of glorification. I'm sorry. It, it means that when we're seated with Jesus in the future, when we have been glorified, when we have a body just like his glorious resurrected body, that future, that wonderful future, should determine how we live in the present. And that means the end result is given to us in the next verse. We have been raised with Christ, seated in the heavens, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Robert, the future is bright. Our present, that describes the first seven verses of Ephesians chapter 2. So it's just a promise. It's a promise of a hope in the future. It's a wonderful, wonderful passage of Scripture. And it goes on. It gets even better as you go down. Thank you, Robert. I hope that helps. It surely did. Thank you so much. Uh, Okay. Thank you. 340-9585. I apologize for my voice. I just got a 
scratch in it here. Uh, here is a question that comes from Rodney. He says, Pastor Ron, I struggle with what is called non-essential doctrines. How do I give liberty to someone who views baptism as a requirement for salvation when I believe that's heresy? Another one is the real presence of Christ in the elements of communion. Um, Rodney, I struggle with you. You know, this is, I think, the hardest thing for a Christian. When we really study our Bibles and on these two issues, as an example, I think it's really, really clear. Um, at the same time, um, we have to give liberty or freedom to people who come with different conclusions in non-essential doctrines. The essential doctrines, the doctrines that define our faith. Uh, Rodney, I'm sure you're clear on those. Here's the problem. If somebody comes to me and says, you have to be baptized to be saved, um, that misrepresents the process of salvation. And I really got to deny my flesh not to be angry about that and not try to win an argument about it. And so the, the, the way you do is you struggle by giving love, by giving them the freedom, by trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to move upon their hearts and their minds. Uh, this idea about the real presence of Christ and the elements of communion. Uh, yesterday was Communion Sunday here at our church. And, um, you know, every communion I tell our church, you know, this cracker is a symbol of the body that was broken for you. It's to be remembered how much he loved you. And those who teach or practice that that cracker becomes the body of Christ or that that cup becomes the blood of Jesus, they're missing out. And yet that is a non-essential. So I think at some time you just got to kind of give up. For some of us, Rodney, I'm not saying this is for you, for me. You got to just sort of swallow your pride and just tell people, you know what? You're still a brother in the Lord and I love you and I'll pray for you. There are other non-essential doctrines that cause me even more difficulty. Um, uh, I'll go one step further and expose my own sin. Um, I think the way people do church here in the United States is, is awful. It makes me angry. I get frustrated when people come to me. We see new people all the time at our church. And I get frustrated when I'll say, well, so where have you been going to church? And I'll name a church and I know it's just kind of wacky or goofy. I want so much more for them. That's the heart of God for them. I want them in a church that teaches the Word. And if they'll teach the Word, then the Word will form what they believe. But I see these people that are so confused. You know, Rodney, I pray every day for the lost, the hurting, the hungry, the broken, the needy, and the confused. There's a lot of confused Christians out there. But rather than argue with them, what I try to encourage them to do is to really dig into the Bible and see what it says and do that. And then I trust that the Holy Spirit is going to change him. You know, Rodney, when you're struggling with these non-essential doctrines, first make sure it's not pride, like it has been in my past. Make sure that you're just not trying to win an argument, but look into the heart and try to win the soul. If they're missing out because of bad doctrine, then you pray for them, you love them, you be there for them. But don't argue with them. 
we live in an argumentative world and um, I'm not on Facebook I think most of you know that but uh, Facebook I'm, I'm told degenerates into Christians arguing with one another on a public forum about things that don't really matter I can't change anybody's mind or heart God can so I love them I teach them I pray for them and every week I have the opportunity to to teach a lot of people. But I can't make them believe what's right. That's a choice they have to make, Rodney. So keep struggling, but please, please, please make sure that your motive isn't pride or winning arguments. Hope that helps a little bit. Lucho asks this question, is it always God's will to heal? Um, eventually, Lucho, it is. When I say eventually, of course, we're going to be healed. That's what, what Jesus did on the cross. But I understand the way you're asking the question. Uh, you're sick. You want God to heal. Somebody's told you that if you just have enough faith, you'll believe it's God's will that you're healed, that you're not going to be sick. But But we know that's nonsense. All you have to do... Uh, before I even get to the Bible, all you have to do is look around and see the numbers of people, faithful people, people that love God, people that have grown in their faith, people that have really trusted God. And the truth is, every one of them dies. Every one of those faith healers, every one of those prosperity and faith teachers, they die. They're all getting old. Their hair is getting grayer, and their midsections are getting bigger, and their 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 eyes are getting weaker. Why? Because that's just the process of life. And one time, Lucho had a guy come into our church. He was all dressed up. And when people come to our church dressed up, you know they're visitors. And uh, at the end of the service, he came up to me and he said, Pastor, good word, good word. And then he said the word that I knew was coming. But don't you think that by wearing glasses, back then I was wearing glasses, my eyes were just starting to go really, really bad. He said, don't you think by wearing glasses you're sending the wrong message to your people? And I said, I hope not. I, they helped me see. And I knew where he was going. And he said, no, you should tell them that all they have to do is believe to have faith and God would heal them. If they see you wearing glasses, then they're not going to believe God will heal them. Now, as he was talking to me, I kept staring at his hair because his hair was absolutely white. And finally, he got a little uncomfortable when he was staring. He said, so why are you staring at my hair? He said, did that hair used to be black at one time? He said, yeah. I said, well, don't you have enough faith to make it the original color again? And then I put my arm around him a little bit because I didn't want him to think I was trying to argue with him. I just wanted to make a point. We are born dying. When everyone dies, the ratio of death is one to one, with two exceptions, Enoch and Elijah. And those of us who will still be alive when the rapture of the church happens. But we're all going to die. We all get sick. The Apostle Paul, I don't think anybody can question his faith, Lucho. The Apostle Paul pleaded with God three times to heal him of a physical affliction, the thorn in the flesh. 
And three times God said no. And then he explained it with my grace is sufficient for you. So it is not God's will to heal everyone when he heals some people and a relative few when he heals some people it's a gift that we should be grateful for it's just the goodness the kindness of God Lucio I've seen more damage done to people who taught this pernicious doctrine of healing they just don't understand their Bible so it's not always God's will to heal in fact most times it's not his will to heal and we end up dealing with whatever the illness is. And we fight and we struggle and we walk with Jesus and then we die. But don't let anybody tell you that it's always God's will to heal. That is one sure sign that that person does not know anything at all about their Bible. 340-9585 here is an end times question from Randy. So, Pastor Ron, what is the difference between pre, post, and amillennialism? And then he says, does it really matter which is true? Um, Randy, I think it matters a great deal. You know, I, I've been teaching in the Olivet Discourse, so our emphasis here has been on um, end times and the things that are going to happen in the future. Jesus um, sent his prophets to tell his people um, Jews and now Christians about the end times. He wants us to know these things, so it must be important. Um, but uh, also on on Wednesday nights in the, the last six chapters of Isaiah now, we're dealing with the millennial reign of Christ on earth. And uh, a premillennial view, which is the biblical view, um, it just says that, that uh, Jesus' return uh, for justice in this world is going to happen before the millennium, before the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Um, a post-millennial view um, believes that Jesus is going to come and establish his kingdom, but it's going to be um, after the millennial reign on Christ. Now, most of those people believe that we're actually in the millennium now, and somehow he's going to work this all out, which is completely in contrast with what our New Testament tells us about the last days. And amillennialism is even stranger to me. Uh, ah meaning no uh, millennium, meaning no millennium, no thousand-year reign on earth. Uh, in order to come up with that conclusion, Randy, you, you've got to throw away what is so crystal clear in scriptures. I mean, just look at the last chapters in the book of Revelation. Uh, over and over, the thousand years is emphasized. He will reign for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, it's it's as though the Holy Spirit is being as direct as he possibly can, teaching us that this is a legitimate time, a real time, one thousand years where Christ will rule and reign on earth, and we will rule and reign with him. And so to be an amillennialist is to deny what the Bible is so clear and literal about and you have to allegorize it or spiritualize it in order to come up with that position. Randy, these days, the amillennial uh, position is sort of kind of in vogue. It's the really smart people, you know, no, we can spiritualize this and this means this. Um, but a plain reading of your Bible indicates that 
you and I are going to rule and reign with Jesus for a thousand years in Israel as he rules and reigns from the throne of David in Jerusalem from the millennial temple and we'll be ruling and reigning with him on the earth. Again, we're not given detail about what that's going to look like, but it's really important. It's always important what is true. So study your Bible, uh, read it for what it says, and you will conclude that Jesus is going to come before the millennial reign. Now, one other thing about that, don't um, get confused with the uh, millennial reign and the rapture of the church, because seven years before Jesus assumes the kingdom of God, in the millennial reign, he's going to come for his church. He's not going to come to earth. He's going to call us to be with him in the air. And he's going to take us to be with heaven. And then we're going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we get married to Jesus. So, hope that's clear. It's very important. Zachary is asking, it seems to me that Christians aren't very interested in sound doctrine. What do you think is the cause of that? You know, Zachary, I think a lot of Christians... I think way too many Christians aren't interested in sound doctrine. I think there's a couple of reasons. One, um, and I'll go with the lesser to the greater reason. Um, I, I think one of the reasons is sound doctrine's hard to live. Sound doctrine's hard to live. Um, when Paul says make no provision for the flesh, it means to make no provision for the flesh. So um, uh, I, I think that's one reason. I think the greater reason, however, is simply because we're not taught well. We tell stories, we um, tell cute little messages, we want everybody to walk from church feeling good so they can't wait to get back next week, and we just don't teach it. Doctrine is exciting. That's why Paul said to Timothy, right, watch your life and doctrine closely. So I think the cause is, is really, really poor teaching. So Zachary, hope that helps. Let's go to Robert from San Antonio on line one. Robert, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ryan, i got a quick question for you concerning um, the angel Michael and Daniel when he comes down. And I, um, I've been trying to contact a friend of mine, and I'm trying to use this passage where he gets delayed on his way to seeing him. And I believe, I remember, he was fighting one of the other angels or the devil to be able to, but he got delayed before he was able to see them. Does that make sense? It does. Um, I can't find Daniel, I've been looking for that passage forever, and I figure I'd just try to call you up, and you probably know exactly where it's at. <laughs> Thank you, Robert. I do. It's one of my favorite passages. It's sort of a behind-the-scenes look at spiritual warfare that we don't see on this side of, 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 uh, of, of heaven. Uh, it's Daniel chapter 10. Um, the angel is dispatched to give Daniel the meaning of that, that marvelous prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. And um, we're told he's resisted or held up for 21 days because the spiritual warfare was such for 21 days. Now, he was held up by Satan himself. And that's why God dispatched Michael to grant the victory, to allow the angel who was carrying the message to Daniel to get through. Um, Michael and Satan are equal opposites. Michael is Israel's protector. Michael's uh, unique job, his glorious job, is to protect the people of Israel, the Jews. And so God's plan can never get off. Every time um, Michael's involved, uh, he's encountering uh, Satan himself. Um, Satan, who was created 
um, on an equal level in terms of power and beauty, even even perhaps more beautiful than Michael, um, when he wants to mess with God's people, there's always going to be Michael who's there to ensure that Israel is going to be around to protect um, their time. Uh, Israel's got to be there. The Jewish people have to be here. There's been assault after assault on on uh, Jews throughout their history. Michael has been dispatched. I always like to think of Michael Robert uh, in the, the Six-Day War. Uh, I like to think of Michael sort of forcing the way open back in 1948 when, when Israel could become a nation again. The people could be regathered to their homeland. Um, I, I like to think of all of the nations that have tried to wipe uh, Israel off the face of the map. They're fighting Michael. They're not really fighting Israel. You know, we get this image of Israel as a tough, well-prepared uh, army, um, but but it's God fighting for them in the person of Michael. So uh, Daniel chapter 10, I did an extensive teaching on that. If you go to calvarysa.com uh, and go to the Old Testament studies and see Daniel um, there'd be a lot of really neat information, but but this is sort of what goes on in the spiritual realm. Um, I don't think Satan really messes up with my prayers or your prayers, Robert, but I think what happens is there is always going to be that spiritual warfare trying to keep our prayers from getting to heaven or God's answers from getting to us. There's always going to be that warfare, and God has a lot of uh, New Testament types of angels like Michael, not as powerful or as strong, um, but um, God's always going to send us to the rescue. That's what spiritual warfare is really all about behind the scenes. Daniel chapter 10. Thank you, Robert. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Appreciate the few calls that we had. You've been listening to the Word to Stand On for Life. I remember tonight here at Calvary Chapel, we got our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies at 7 o'clock. Paul is actually teaching the ladies uh, in the book of Judges. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 6.30, The Word. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.